Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. The Chinese government have made a monumental policy shift, announcing that they will allow couples to have up to three children after census data showed a steep decline in birth rates. The country has scrapped its decades-old one-child policy in 2016, replacing it with a two-child limit, which has so far failed to generate the uptick in the birth rate needed to keep pace with the country's rapidly ageing population. So far, the cost of raising children in cities has deterred many Chinese couples. An online poll conducted by state media found 29,000 out of 31,000 respondents would never dream of having three children. So, will the government's easing of the rules make any difference at all? And iron ore prices are once again unsettling nerves as Chinese regulators attempt to cool off the country's white-hot recovery in manufacturing and industry. Joining the program today, Professor James Lawrenson from the Australia-China Relations Institute and industry professor and chief economist with UTS's Institute of Public Policy and Governance, Professor Tim Harcourt. Professor Lawrenson, to start off, why is this move by the Chinese government so significant? Sure. Look, uh, there's not a lot of public policy in China that is known the world over, but one of the policies that is well known is the one-child policy that was introduced in the 1970s. Um, Look, a consequence of that is that as fewer children have been born, China's population has been rapidly ageing. And in 2013, the government decided that it needed to adjust course and allowed for a two-child policy. Um, And in recent days, they've relaxed that even further to allowing couples to have um, three children. Um, So that's a a significant shift um, in terms of government policy, but I'm not sure. Actually, I've got my serious, I've got serious doubts about just how effective it will be. And one thing that I do find quite funny is that uh, I, I believe one of the things that the government actually said that they were intending on doing was helping to educate young Chinese married couples on the benefits of having larger families, which is interesting because one of the main reasons that a lot of young Chinese couples aren't intending on having two children, let alone three, is the exceptionally high cost of raising kids, particularly in Chinese cities. So do you think that having the government essentially dictate that you can have more than two children is really going to make a difference where it counts? Uh, No, I don't think the government allowing for three children is going to make much difference at all. You know, we've got to be very careful overseas. We hear a lot about Chinese government propaganda and sometimes it's easy for us to slip into a view that um, whatever the Chinese government says that Chinese people follow when of course that's completely wrong. Chinese people are, are smart independent thinkers just like we are here in Australia and the main reason they're not having kids is because of the costs and stresses associated with having those children in China, particularly if you're in a first-tier city where housing costs are through the roof. And frankly, also, where there isn't a lot of social support coming from the government in terms of things like childcare. So, so these are the challenges the Chinese government are going to have to address if they want Chinese couples to have more children. Um, simply uh, reciting propaganda isn't going to work. And obviously one of the big drives here, or indeed the main drive here, is China's rapid, well, rapidly is, is probably a bit too emotive a word to use, but certainly their ageing population is on par with other countries that are well known for having ageing populations like Italy and Japan. 
What sort of fear is there within the inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party regarding the future of their economy if they're so willing to push and, you know, get the whole propaganda operation into effect uh, regarding their, their population and their birth rate? Yeah, well, look, I think Australia actually offers some insights over here. Over the last decade, a lot of Australia's overall economic growth has actually come from an expanding population. Um, so for a long time, China has benefited from an expanding labour force, uh, but that's come to an end now. And so China today is worried about where the future sources of growth will come from. Um, and folks in Beijing are thinking that, well, some of it will, will we'd like some of it to come from population growth. But look, I don't think... Um when you look at Chinese economic growth over the last few decades, um, the expanding labour force has actually only been a very small proportion of growth. Most of China's growth has come from better technology, investment in capital and so on. Um, so I think these are the areas of growth which are, which are, which are really going to drive China forward, not again expanding the labour force. And do you think, I know from some research that Along with this policy, there have been some changes to legislation in China that does make it at least nominally easier for couples to have children. I believe that uh, working mothers are going to be having their sort of legal rights shored up um, and, and things like that, which have been considered quite progressive. Do you think that the Chinese population, particularly now with uh, an appetite for so many of the luxuries that they've been given over the last 30-odd years from opening up to the, the Western world and to foreign markets, that the idea of, of having children and, and having a large family is just no longer relevant? I think the appetite in China today amongst young Chinese couples to have more children is very limited. Um, but look, it is things like providing better childcare that the Chinese government is going to have to do if they want Chinese people to to you know for fertility rates to once again increase. Uh, don't forget, it's not just about um, fertility rates that will have an impact on China's labour force. There's a number of other things the Chinese government can do. For example, um, China has a very low retirement age now. Chinese people are living longer than ever. Um, and so there's an opportunity for the government, just like in Australia, to adjust the retirement age upwards. So there's also clear scope for Chinese, the Chinese government to um, increase the participation rate of women in the workforce, um, allow more immigration, um, and also technological change in autom aut automation, robotics. Um, they're going to alleviate pressures on the labour force as well. So there's a number of government options that the Chinese government has. Um, relaxing the one-child policy is probably the most, the most least effective amongst all the options. And on the topic of the economy, big news in Australia is that iron ore has now drawn the ire of Chinese regulators. As with many other industries, there's been quite a storied history over the last few years. Um, regarding that, is that part of the grand plan that also encompasses this drive to increase the birth rate of China trying to reshift the goalposts on how their economy is going to take its place in the global recovery after COVID? Well, I think I would separate um, the moves towards 
iron ore and Chinese steel manufacturers from, from those associated with um, you know the, the announcement for a for a three child um, policy. Uh, and look on the iron ore issue, uh, I'm not so sure. I know we've heard a lot of news about how Chinese regulators are trying to bring down the price of iron ore, but in the end, these prices are set in markets by demand and supply. This again gets back to the point. Sometimes we do have this image in Australia that whatever the Chinese government says will result. Well, not when it comes to the iron ore price. Um, you know, China needs iron ore for its steel mills, and if it can't get it from Brazil or Africa or other suppliers, then it's got to get it from Australia. Um, so I'm not predicting any, um, you know, collapse in China's demand for Australian iron ore, at least over, say, the next uh, three to five years. So do you think that that's really much ado about nothing? Because that that has been something that a lot of people have regarded as as potentially a little bit of a spanner in the works regarding our domestic recovery, which already people are arguing shouldn't be hinged upon primary resources, but on the same hand that have been shown to be a goldmine for the Australian economy, regardless of what party happens to be in power at the time. So do you think that that is really a, a lot of hot air, essentially? Yeah, essentially, I do think the government, the Chinese government's noises around iron ore over the last few weeks are hot air. Um, I think Beijing would be quite happy for Australians to be a bit fearful that, um, just as we've seen with wine and barley and some other goods, that iron ore might be next on the hit list um, and that maybe the Australian government might want to think about that in its foreign policy towards China. But in the end, I think it's hot air. Uh, because the Australian government, certainly Australian iron ore miners, can see the reality on the ground, and that is um, one of demand and supply. Um, Chinese demand for iron ore remains high. There's not a lot of, a lot of other supply options. Um, so I expect that trade will continue at pace, uh, because if China cut it off, cut it, off um, it would be a monumental act of shooting itself in its foot. And now we'll cross to Professor Harcourt. Soaring prices for iron ore and fossil fuels have threatened to derail China's comeback, but now Beijing directors have potentially upended the gains made by Australia's blue ribbon primary industry. It's not the first industry to draw criticism from China for price gouging, but for so crucial a resource as iron ore to an economy on the mend like China's, It isn't hard to obviously imagine problems. Now, Professor Lawrenson has said that like a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of China, this could potentially be much to do about nothing. So can you give us an explanation of what the relationship is between China and Australian iron ore? Well, basically, 70% of the iron ore that China imports comes from Australia. Uh, It's the the best quality. It's uh, 14 hours, you know, you know, um, shipping over from the Pilbara to to China. So it's just what they need. And given that their economy is recovering from COVID, you know, their industrial region really relies basically on direct supply from the Pilbara. And it's not the first time that China has made not necessarily an allegation of price gouging, but they have said in this regulatory change that they want foreign companies to not engage in price gouging. Um, Now, that's an accusation that has been levelled before. We've had price gouging accusations for wine, for beef. Um, Do you think that by saying that it's price gouging, they're really essentially saying that the prices need to drop, otherwise 
foreign companies just won't be competitive in China anymore? Or do you think there is really price gouging going on? No, there's not price gouging. It's just that uh, there's incredible demand from China uh, for iron ore and also they've undertaken trade restrictions in coal and in steel and in other commodities that has uh, made iron ore even more valuable. So in some ways they've brought it upon themselves. And to try and save face, they've accused uh, suppliers of gouging. So in some ways, um, you know, they've put all, all this upon themselves and uh, the only way out is for them to make a bit of noise. So was it the record highs that have probably inspired this particular move or do you think that Chinese regulators have for quite a long while been looking particularly at the importance of iron ore to the economy in in terms of recovering from COVID-19 and knowing full well that if prices continued to rise then the economy would just heat up to unsustainable levels. So do you think that it's not just the price rise over the last few weeks but instead quite a sustained plan by China? Look, I think uh, China knows that it's on a good thing with respect to a good supply of iron ore from Australia, from the Pilbara. And um, the trouble is the alternative supplies such as Brazil have been hit by COVID and the accident with Vale and uh, places in Africa that they've thought about as developing upward alternative. That's just not happened. Um, So they're in a spot and um, all this trade rhetoric and trade tensions against Australia is pretty counterproductive because at the end of the day, China needs Australia just as much as you know Australia needs China. Mm. And is there much of a market elsewhere in the world to get quality iron ore? You've already said that Brazil, obviously with the, uh, the disaster, have, have dropped off significantly. But in terms of finding a competitor to Australia, if you were the Chinese government, where are the alternatives? They hoped it was Brazil. They hoped they'd be Guinea. Um, all the all this has been uh, talk, and none of it, none of it's happened. Um, I've just interviewed Elizabeth Gaines, the CEO of Fortescue, for my UTV show after the pandemic on Ausbiz, and uh, she basically said they've got contracts locked in for 20, 30 years. Fortescue's invested, of course, uh, in China itself uh, in the supply chain. So, um, you know, it's a very good deal for both countries and very, very good deal for Fortescue and the uh, the Chinese consumers of iron ore. So ultimately, it's just political talk because, you know, they've sort of painted themselves into a corner. And on the topic of political talk, obviously, Australia's plan for the next 30 years regarding renewable energy when iron ore is having its moment in the sun as it is now and obviously with the Chinese regulators that moment has slightly dropped off but it's still I don't think it's convinced anyone that iron ore isn't viable at least in terms of price do you see potentially the Australian government probably looking at this particular situation as a justification for not maybe pushing a more aggressive stance on renewables? Interestingly, Fortescue, you know, when I interviewed Elizabeth Gaines, uh, Fortescue's done a uh, you know, decarbonisation of its own operation. So uh, when you look at the climate innovation amongst the Australian energy sector, a lot of this is, or, is uh, already happening. Um, we just uh, launched the Airport Economist Climate Innovation special episode with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and from everything from uh, iron order um, 
batteries in South Australia to electric uh, buses and transport, we're seeing, you know, Australia putting the green back in the green and gold and a lot of, you know, important renewable and, uh, you know, green technology doing good things in Australia and, and in China and India and Indonesia and right around the world. So I think the um, the reality of what's going on in the um, renewable sector is really different than the um, the political rhetoric that you're seeing. And do you think that that reality is going to be sustainable or do you think that these prices are really being pushed by the incredibly unusual circumstances that we're in economically at the moment where almost every single country and economy in the world is in a stage of rebuilding? Well, it's partly the circumstances, but they're, you know, they're, they're reasonably, they're going to be, you know, the COVID recovery is going to globally take some time. Uh, and also, ultimately, you know, China's changing itself from being a nation of shippers to a nation of shoppers, more reliant on local consumption and investment. And for that reason... Um, you're going to see a bullish iron ore price you know, in the medium to long term. For a generation of Chinese citizens who've grown up in a whirlwind of wage growth and capital opportunity, government policy encouraging larger families may simply fall on deaf ears until improvements are made to exceptionally high costs of raising children. And speaking of high costs, that nation of shoppers is gradually moving away from the industrial capital of the world, and with that departure also goes the insatiable hunger for Aussie iron ore. Think Business Futures is recorded at the studios of 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. You can catch all our episodes online wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Max Silman. Thanks for listening.